it's, it's still i mean this analogy for me this building this this giant brain on top of this this perceptive uh, input that comes from the, the big universe that's that that amazes me yeah it, it it is amazing i mean the the uh uh i think the coming decade the coming two decades or something will be the combination of so it's not just lsst there will be a range of new observatories with these different messengers that that i hope will be constructed and it's kind of the combination of these with with the new ai techniques that in principle I mean, it will allow us to discover uh, just completely new facets of the universe that that we had no idea existed before. So, so this is um, this scientific kind of potential here is 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 extremely exciting. It's it's then the uh, the question how we can go there in in a way that doesn't drive everyone insane that's trying to do it. My name is Bolash Kegel, and this is the iScientist podcast, where we explore artificial intelligence, the body and the soul. This is my great, great pleasure today to host uh, Jakob Nordin. Jakob is an astrophysicist in uh, Humboldt University in Berlin, Germany, and he's a member of the LSST collaboration, which will be the main topic of uh, today's conversation. So how are you, Jakob, today? I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. How are you? I'm great, great. So let me just introduce a little bit why we are here. So we, we met a, a month ago. I gave a talk to astrophysicists about something completely different. But the audience was very receptive to my, you know, my presentation about the future of engineering. And after we had like a two hour conversation in the reception and we started to talk about what you do which is LSST it's an astrophysics experiment it's an observatory that's being built so we will talk about this so what is fascinating about this so I, I knew this uh, experiment from the time when I worked with physicists uh, in the Sackley University where the presentation was and I understood already that this is going to be quite different from what we've been doing in astronomy not only in the sense of its size and technological advance on the hardware but also the the informational structure and the computational structure that we are building on top of this observatory to deal with the enormous amount of data that it will collect which is something that's pretty new in in astronomy so so this is why I wanted to talk to you to understand a little bit uh, who you are, what you do, the experiment, talk a little bit, a little bit about the the actual uh, hardware, so the the, the telescope that uh, we are building, and the informational complexity and the structure which you are participating in that we are building for for dealing with this. So. My first question would be like who you are, uh, are you an astronomer or uh, an astrophysicist and what is the difference and how did you become one and what did attract you to, to this uh, beautiful uh, domain? 
it seems uh, unfair to already start with a question that I can't answer. Uh, typically, so what's an astronomer? What's an astrophysicist? What a physicist? That that's a very, um, it, it's a very fluid distinction. Um, so so, I think I typically say that I'm an observational astrophysicist. You could also say that I'm a physicist working with astronomical data. That's a. So so this this means that as a physicist you are interested in the the physics but you are interested in the physics that explain astronomy. Yeah, at least originally my goal was to understand the physics so so the physics the, the, the natural laws that govern our universe in principle uh, and then we use observations of the astronomy to try to uh, better nail down those laws basically the Earth, where we live, is a very small place, and 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 there are many tests we cannot do do here because it's it's too cold, it's too small, and and the only way to attack those even larger questions is to use the whole the whole universe as 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 a lab. So that that was my original starting point. As I think we'll we'll get to these days, what I'm actually doing is try to decide uh, design systems that can actually process all of this data or understand all of this data that we're getting from from observatories that that look out um, out into the universe it's 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 quite fascinating to me my father was an amateur astronomer and he's a mechanical engineer that who built uh, telescopes in his uh, spare time for for an ast uh, 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 amateur astronomer it was they were pretty nice so when I was a child we could watch the the moons of uh, Jupiter and the Saturn's ring from uh, from the porch, and the, you know the neighborhood gathered around this. It was almost like a, a ritual of, of uh, looking up in the sky, like Galileo did. Uh, and so he actually dreamt about becoming an astronomer. But are there any astronomers per se remaining? In science, or we are all astrophysicists who work with uh, astrophysics. I mean, that, that that's again where I think the the distinction becomes subjective. You can, um, I I think, most people working or scientists working with astronomical data are still astronomers in the sense that they are trying to map out um, what happens in the universe, what sort of of uh, objects exist there. Um, how do they work? Where do they come from? But then, of course, it's a sliding scale that all of that is driven by physical processes. So as you pursue those questions, eventually you, you, you come into these questions. So how, how do these objects actually work? Um, I, see. I, I, I think in the end, it's a pretty random definition that probably is decided by, by what course you happen to take first uh, in university. So it's in practice, it's a distinction that doesn't matter too much. I see. I see. So it's basically you have a sort of cataloging thing, like you look at the individual objects and try to categorize them and understand what they are. And then there's the physics behind, which goes deeper into what what are the laws that govern all this, right? So that, that's like one this. way to, to make a, a distinction. Uh, 
again in a practical case it's typically mm -hmm. fluid but yes okay, okay, i mean okay. you you can you can um um you can probably make a distinction but that some science groups are are happy cataloging every kind of variable event that can happen and and other science groups are only interested in determining determining the the few parameters that govern the universe at, at its largest scales and and then there's any sort of of kind of intermediate research interest i see i see so we'll get there because i'm very much interested in the sociology of of all this like we had Vava gligorov on on this show who explained us how particle physics work and works and how the the, the collective actually acts as a as a filter uh, to make sure that what we publish are really the truth and that there is a convergence because we have to build bigger and bigger instruments so a lot of people with different interests have to converge to what we actually build so that's there's also an interesting sociological process of how to do this so we get in there and i want to smoothly go into the topic of lsst but give us perhaps a historical view of uh, what are the type of instruments we've been building? How we arrived to this uh, this this huge telescope that we are building there, and and what are the kind of uh, yeah scientific uh, questions that we want to answer with this? Yeah, maybe, maybe if I take take a little bit um, half a step back. In principle, if we think about astronomical observatories, we can kind of arrange them in a few different dimensions. Um, first of all, they can observe with different messenger. So looking out basically for different particles. So, so this is where we would have photons or neutrinos or gravitational waves or cosmic rays and, 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 and so on. Um, and then we can think about the energy scale. So how energetic are the particles that we're looking at? So that would form another dimension. Um, and then a third dimension would be, um, so, so what's what field of view are we looking at? Are we looking at the small patch of sky or are we trying to monitor everything? Um, and then we can add a fourth dimension, so a time dimension. So are we trying to create a map, a fixed static map of, of say all the galaxies that are out there? Or are we trying to have a dynamic map that, that maps every few days or a few seconds to see, to look at everything that's varying in the sky? So kind of we can we can put in different observatories in, um, in these dimensions. Um, and, and basically gradually, as we have learned to build better and better uh, uh, telescopes, observatories. We've been, of course, driving into the extreme in all of these, uh, in all of these, uh, uh, all of these categories, all of these edges. Um, so, what started at LSST first? We should we should define it now. It's the Vera Rubin Observatory. Um, so, uh, uh, Vera Rubin, very influential astronomer, who kind of cemented the idea that dark matter must exist out there. So, so it's very um, suitably named after her. And then the actual survey that's going to carry it out is now called the LSST uh, survey. Um, and it's been built now in Chile. It's, it will be completed next year, I hope. Uh, and in terms of where we land in, um, in this dimensional space, 
it will actually be pretty good on a lot of different things. So it will, it has quite a large field of view. Uh, it observes basically across the wavelength spectrum for photons, which is observable from the ground. So basically optical wavelengths, in principle, what we can see with our eyes. Um, and it will have some sort of cadence. So every few days, it will return to the same patch in the sky so that we can detect new variable sources. Um, and kind of adding all of these together makes it into a, a unique observatory that will both produce the most detailed map over all of the southern sky at the same time as producing lots of information of these transient events, these variable objects that, that exist out in the universe. So, so it's going to, um, we can't really see it as one experiment because it's, it's a uh, kind of a peak of a lot of technological developments that will allow us to do many different things. So both look, have a very detailed view of the full sky as well as look for very distant or faint uh, transient events. Okay, just to, to give an idea to the to listeners, uh, we, get, we get a couple of, uh, a lot of images on the internet from the Hubble telescope and more recently from the, the James Webb, which are uh, photos taken by a telescope on the, on a satellite, right? So, as I understand, the, the trade-off is that we cannot uh, send a huge mirror up to this uh, to the space because it it would be too complicated technologically. But the advantage there that there is no atmosphere, so you can go much deeper. But the field of view is much smaller, right? So so that's more like a classical telescope because, as I understood. It used to be like you had this telescope built by some agencies and then the astronomers and the astrophysicists signed up for telescope time and directed asked the, 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 the telescope to direct themselves to a certain okay. patch of the sky and then they took observations and the whoever asked for it analyzed the data. So the, the satellite-based telescopes work more like that, right? Because they have to choose where to look, whereas what LSST will be is a survey, a pre-scheduled sweep of all the sky. So you, nobody will have to actually decide where to look except for maybe 10% of the time because it will automatically sweep the sky and then the data will be just somewhere. We'll talk about it, of course, and it will be analyzed. But you will, for example, not ask LS, LSST to, to look at a certain patch, right? No, that's the, the and, and it's, it's, um, uh, it's, it's kind of typically with these wide field telescope, it, to, to look at a specific an individual point in the sky is usually a waste of your beautiful machine, which is really designed to, to look at large volumes. Mm -hmm. so, so it's really, these are really complementary um, uh, facilities where the space telescope, as you say, they're outside of the atmosphere. So uh, both the photons are not absorbed or perturbed in the atmosphere. So you can really observe individual systems, very distant objects or, or very, uh, or, or observe nearby objects with extremely high resolution to really figure out every little detail of what happens there. 
So, so they are um, magnificent tools for that purpose. So they will really complement each other where LSST will provide this wide, uh, deep volumetric study of everything that happens while HST and web can, can then do detailed examinations of single points in this, this huge space. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about numbers because, you know, I just went to check it out and it's like mind boggling what's going to happen here. Uh, I don't know how, how so I, I would be really interested in the, in the actual hardware. So what, what is the size of the, the telescope? How is it built? Who is building it? Why does it take so much time to make a mirror, et cetera? So these are all fascinating questions for me. So anything that you can, you can tell us from this, uh, this angle. The, the, so a lot of the numbers, I wouldn't know, know um, by heart. It is, um, in, in a lot of ways, it uses, um, I mean, it's hard to build a large telescope for, for many different reasons. One is just that an optical telescope contains a mirror, which becomes uh, very heavy if you try to build a large dish which may, makes it, and of course you need to keep it in a very specific shape to focus all the photons into a single spot. So that produces kind of a natural limit for uh, how large you can make this telescope. So one of the evolutions we're seeing now is that it's actually split up into smaller segments. And each of these segments are specifically then controlled while you're observing to keep the dish in its perfect shape. So these are kind of one set of technological uh, evolutions. The other step has to do with uh, the other kind of um, great um, evolution has to do with the cameras we're dealing with, right? The, the limiting factor 20 or 30 years ago used to be that, that the CCDs were tiny and not very sensitive. Um, and now if you look at the, at the uh, LSST camera or the Verhoeven camera, it's a huge thing where actually the physical sensor size, again, I don't, don't remember the numbers, but we now have the technology to actually build large wafers that are extremely sensitive to optical photons. So these are kind of the kind of technological developments that allowed to build a large telescope that can serve this wide field of view in, in, in one shot. And basically in, in, uh, in, in, in 30 seconds or so, go deeper than we've ever gone before in, in a particular direction of the sky. Okay, so it's, it's basically, it will take a photo every 15 seconds or 30? It, it, um, it's still being uh, optimized, but, but probably 15 seconds and then another one, so you can reject things like cosmic rays between them. So it will take two quick two quick observations, and then we'll move to slightly new patch. Yeah, because cosmic rays attack the the CCD directly, right? Yes. And they will make little pixels, and if you take two photos, then you can filter them out. It's exactly. ingenious. That's yeah. the that's the easiest way to get rid of them. So so one of the things that 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 mind is mind boggling for me is how you deal with the the atmosphere because. 15 seconds is long enough that, that, or that if you, you look at the sky by naked eye, you see it's vibrating. It's vibrating not because the sky, the, the original object is changing luminosity or direction, but because the air changes the, you know, the turbulences change the directions of the photons. So how, how do we deal with this? Because 15 seconds is too long for, or maybe it's, this is why it's 15 seconds. So you can 
Kennst du Litauen? The first thing we do is that is that we go to mountain in a desert. Hmm. Uh, I mean, the, there you have much less atmosphere, and the atmosphere is is uh, much more stable. Um, so, to a certain degree, that reduces this turbulence, um, but it will not remove it perfectly. In 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 uh, 15 seconds, you will every star will experience this little jingle and you will basically integrate over that so that you see a, a an average over that position which is um uh, unfortunate but again that's the distinction compared with space telescopes because there you you um um you get rid of this effect completely there there are other instruments where you can experiment with lucky imaging. So you take really, really short exposures and then you try to combine them in a way to get rid of this jiggle. Um, but that then you get a, a lot of other inefficiencies. So, so the primary way to do it is to go to a really good site and then live with it. Uh, that's the, uh, the, the residual scene that, that, that we experience. Yes. So I, I was in a PROG collaboration, and that's not far from Chile, actually, on the other side of the Andes. And I'm just, you know, it's an interesting thing that because of these sort of technical considerations, these these observatories are getting built in really exotic sites, and you get to go yeah. there and yeah. see the desert or the plateau of uh, um, Malargue for, for Roger. Before everything became virtual, it used to be one of the nice aspects of doing astronomy <laughs> a few times a year. And also before you didn't have to avoid flying, you could you could go to Chile or Hawaii uh, to, 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 because you actually had to go up to these remote sites and you had to be there in person. Yeah, the Canary um, Island, I've seen the, the telescope, yeah, the yeah. beautiful site, yeah. Okay, so I do have some numbers and I, I would like you to explain what those are. So <clears throat> first of all, there will be seven trillion detections yep what is a detection a, a detection is a variable object that's seen when you take one of those 30 second exposure i assume already we take two 15 second exposures we get rid of all the noise and then we look for new astronomical sources in this image and typically we do that by subtracting a reference image so an image that we made that contains no variable light and then we subtract it and we see if there's some residual light source in this image and typically there will be uh, and that is then called a detection okay so that's that's only the variable objects variable luminosity objects the detection yes I see and I see and, and uh, and of course, a constantly varying object might be detecting detected many times. I see. I see. So okay, okay. So it's not per object, but per per change. <laughs> yeah. And so 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 give 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 me a an idea about the, what are the cut the, the the broad categories of uh, of changing objects. The, the, um, the first category would be just noise. We talked about cos cosmics, but, but there are plenty of other uh, noise that could be coming from the instrument, from the way we do the subtractions, or from the, um, uh, or from the atmosphere, from surrounding instruments, whatever. So, so these are obviously 
boring events for any users. So, so hopefully we can get rid of those. Then we get to kind of the, the astronomical categories, which we can uh, we can split them up in a few different ways. Um, but we can start with solar system objects. So that would be planets, asteroids that exist in any size. Of course, as you go fainter, we will discover many, many more or objects in our solar system. Um, then if we go slightly further up, we get to the Milky Way. Uh, and uh, if you look closely enough at stars, most of them will be variable one way or another. They are not static in their lifetime, but, but a lot of them experience some sort of, of uh, pulsational vibration. This could be, for some types, this could be very violent. For others, it could be almost non-existent. Does the sun vary like that? Um, yes, I mean, there, it, it does. We have all the, the, the um, uh, sunstorm and activities and so on. It's not on a very high magnitude. I think viewed from a large distance, our sun is now in a relatively stationary uh, state, but a lot of other stars vary uh, very repeatedly on, on everything from, from um, very short to, to, to very long timescales. And, and that's, of course, a key to understanding the physics that actually drives the star. Uh, is it related to some gravity effect where it's close to collapsing? Uh, is it because there's a wind material being thrown out? Is it because we actually have a system of many stars that are orbiting each other? There are all of these cases will happen, and, and you can try to disentangle them by looking at this variability. Um, so then we go further out from the uh, Milky Way to extragalactic phenomena, and there we find um, two broad categories, um, the way, at least the way I see it from an informational point of view. The first has to do with uh, basically black holes doing stuff in the course of galaxies. So, uh, and that's what we call AGN or quasars and so on, depending on, on, on their state and how we're looking at them. So AGNs are, of course, uh, black holes are, of course, very powerful phenomena. Uh, and we might think of them as dark, but in this process, typically in large galaxies, we have a black hole in the middle and the process where this is accreting material, some of it is uh, added to the black hole eventually, and this we don't see, but a lot of it is being thrown out in very energetic processes. And this we see as, as variability. Um, and then we have the final category, and that's where I'm mainly focusing my interest, and that has to do with explosive extragalactic transients. So these are typically supernovae. So stars at their end of their life that, that end in, in a very violent explosion that is uh, short term. It might last from, from a few days to a few months on that time scale. Okay. So there will be seven trillion detections. This is for the lifetime? Yeah, that, that's okay. for the 10 years of the nominal uh, uh, duration. So there are 37 billion objects. I'm, I suppose those are the ones that don't change. Like half of them, uh, about half yes. of them are stars, half of them are galaxies. Yeah, or, or, or um, yeah, so, so these are things that have been discovered in these maps that will be created. Mm -hmm. um, mo mo most of them will probably be detected as variable at least once to be registered into this. 
but they will be of, of, of any different category. Okay, so these are just the variables. Okay, I see, I see. Uh, and the next number is the nightly alert rate, which is just amazing. So there will be 10 million alerts every yep. night. Yep. I guess alert is something that's there this night, which wasn't there four days ago. Yeah. Or whenever this field was, was looked at before, and this will vary. Um, so, so we do the subtraction, and, and LSST will be shining along the sky with the sensitivity detection. Every 30, sec uh, 30 seconds, we will do the subtraction. And then in every image, wherever we're looking, whenever we're looking, everywhere there are variable events. And for each of those, there will be an alert distributed saying, hey, this is something is happening in this position. And that's then. Now, 10 million alerts. It's too many for astrophysicists to actually look the, look at them, right? They are uh, definitely. Um, why? So, first question is why? Why do we alert? Why don't we just store it and analyze later? The, that, the that's a good question. Yeah. Uh, and for some science directions, that's uh, perfectly fine for some science project projects. But for a lot of, of um, applications, for me, or just for general studies, uh, you can't do that because you need to react to the alert as it's coming to follow this transient, if it is a transient, up with other instruments. Because here we come back to this complementarity between, say, LSST and, and Webb or other uh, ground-based telescopes in that when you look at the full energy range that a transient could, could um, uh, exhibit, so that any physical variability that could be there, uh, LST is very sensitive. It looks over this wide sky, but it's actually only sampling a very narrow energy range in this whole band. So to actually understand what physical process um, is going on, we need to detect it and then get on this particular object with other instruments. Uh, it could be at other wavelengths. Uh, it could be enough to look whether anything else was, was seen there. It could be getting a spectrum. Uh, because since they are transient events, if we don't look during this week or a month, um, then it will be gone. So there will be no I use see. to come back and look for it later. I see, I see. So we, we want to catch this, for example, something is exploding. We want to catch it in the beginning so we can measure it with other instruments. And this, yeah. this is also something that fascinated me that we have this what's called multi-messenger astrophysics or multi-messenger observatory where it's basically a network of these observatories that put into the same information system so they can catch each other's alerts and those where you, you need to make a decision to focus somewhere can be focused on onto the interesting events. So I know, maybe you know, probably you know more more of this, but we have a, a gravitational wave experiments like LIGO and Virgo. We have Auger and Telescope Array, which look at high energy cosmic rays. We, we have, uh, of course, the, the photons, gamma ray, radio, so all kind of 
different communities who build different telescopes for different reasons, but for this particular reason, to catch the fast changing objects, you guys collaborate. So it seems to me almost like if I look at the Earth as an ecosystem, these are the different sensors, eye, ear, hand, and there is a sort of attention mechanism built on top of this. These are this alert where you get some light into your eye here, you turn your head there, you try to catch it or you try to go away if you're afraid. So it's almost like we are building like this beast, like this living beast where each little piece is sort of like, we'll get into the AI part, but it's, it's becoming intelligent. And then the whole thing is like a collaborative detection mechanism of interesting things out there in the universe further and further away and uh, in time and space so it's 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 amazing so let's talk about this this infrastructure a little bit so first first of all what is this multi-messenger thing how are these alerts handled and uh, what what is the infrastructure you you're building not only in, in lsst but in the other observatories so the the the, the 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 picture you view of this this multi sensor I wouldn't call it a beast, uh, <laughs> but uh, I mean there are other beasts. I don't think that's a beast. I think that's kind of a critical way to actually understand what's happening. I, I think it it very much um, is similar to our different sense uh, senses that that when you look at these transients, you learn very different things as you observe it with, with different sensors. I think the, the gravitational waves, that's of course the prime examples. It's, it's, we now have these amazing sensitive detectors that can actually uh, feel when gravitational waves are propagating through the earth. I mean, that, that in itself is mind boggling. Um, yeah. And through that, we can, for example, study merging black holes for those we won't see much. Um, but there are other events that give rise to gravitational waves, like, like merging neutron stars. Uh, so these are also extremely interesting physical objects that will give rise to a gravitational wave, but also signatures in, uh, for example, optical wavelengths uh, and in radio wavelengths. Uh, and there you definitely get different sorts of information, like from the gravitational wave, you can tell that something happened and how massive these neutron stars were, but you don't actually know where this happened. Your localization is not very good. And this is where, for example, optical telescopes are actually really good. You can then scan through an area and uh, find the correct locations and then, um, um, and then try to see, do I find a new transient here that could match the signal we got from LIGO Virgo? So how, how does this work? In some sense, it's pretty crude now, uh, but different observatories, when they get those detections, they send out notices. Um, partially still by email, partially as, as uh, Kafka alert streams, but you can listen to these and then you get uh, an, uh, an, uh, yeah, you get the announcement. And then if you have control of a telescope, you can decide to observe this or not. So this is a lot what, what, what the, these multi-messenger groups are doing in the sense they listen to different alert streams coming and then they make decisions on, on what to do with them. Um, we are not quite at the stage that I, I think you described yet where this is an automatic process. It's still 
very much a a uh, a field that's emerging and and when there there are still fairly isolated communities that are discussing every alert and thinking about what information do i make public uh what do i what do i tell whom so so uh and and what events do i trigger on what do i not so so there's still a lot of kind of developing sociology there yeah, it's, it's fascinating. So I didn't mean that it's already all AI-ified. I'm just saying that it, it, from far, it looks like, I mean, we are part of the network, like the human attention is part of this, this attention, mm -hmm. but from far away, it does look like, a, um, I, and by, by beast, I didn't mean any negative. It's, I just mean, it's almost like a living organism that has sensors which are much more sensitive than ours we are part of them and we are building the attention mechanism which is very very important because like 10 million alerts a night you cannot assign people to each of them and so you you are forced maybe some others have less alerts per night so they can still have the the astronomer or the astrophysicist on shift, which is also an interesting concept. I remember in Auger, we have shifts. They do have these in, in uh, particle physics experiments too, like people who go there and they have to monitor the things 24-24. And I guess those people could be in, involved in the decision of directing uh, some observatory to some spot on the sky, but not when you have 10 million alerts a night. So here you must automate some of the attention mechanism, which also means that, as you, you told me when we talked first time, that we will actually throw away a lot of things without actually humanly looking at them. We have to because there is no not enough attentional space in our brains. So how does that work, and how what's what's the role of AI in all this? The the um um. If, if we wait a little bit with the AI part, okay. uh, so, so, so the question about how to process these data, as you say, it has to be automated. It, it's the only way to do it. And, um, and in practice, what, what we are trying to do, what, what my group is trying to do is to build infrastructures that are, that are fast enough to process these data streams, but where scientists can still define scientific workflows that actually highlight so these are the kind of events that i would be interested in and then they are applied to this alert stream and they then do this automatic filtering such that ideally only the really interesting events come out uh, in the end um, so that's kind of as you say this process needs to be automated we are we are right in the middle of this process and, and uh, for some kinds of, of projects, this is going very well, for others not. There's, of course, always the brute force method of throwing away 99% of the data, look at, or 99.9, .9, look at the remaining, and, and you can still do science. But that's the. So, this is um, a beautiful concept. And in, in your presentation at the same workshop where we talked, uh, you said that there is a. a sociological paradigm change here because most of the time astrophysicists and astronomers the way they were were they were just looking at the sky and get inspired by the data they saw whereas here you have to invert the process you have to first define what you're interested in almost like a hypothesis 
like in the scientific method, have, you have to code it into an attention mechanism that will look at the actual alert, alerts and output a positive or negative decision or whether this is what this, this falls in the category that you defined as a workflow, like a computational decision mechanism. And then you get the data and then you analyze it and it's what you gain is of course that you will have an automatic workflow that will give you the data that you analyze and what you lose is the the insight maybe or the, yeah, the getting and, 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 by by unknown things that you see and and at least maybe the illusion of that you you follow some sort of scientific principle i don't know if <laughs> this this id that this this method ever did but yeah it it is it is really pattern sh pattern shift. Astronomy is, of course, an ancient science since thousands of years, and and you can summarize it as that men, because typically it has been men, has been looking into the sky and they've been very smart and they have seen something and they have then written down an idea of, of what could explain this behavior, and and it's been very successful, and it's to our day how most observational astronomy is is being done uh, and it's it's been it's been very successful and and it has allowed for a lot of diversity so so compared to a lot of other science direction astronomy has managed to be very creative by being a very flat organization there's been many small groups that have looked for um or looked at specific kind of phenomena like what what they think is interesting and then they have seen something and they have explained it and and it has created this amazing breadth of different things that are being investigated because there are frankly so many different things in the universe but but as you say this idea of, of being reactive to data just does not work if you want to take these data flow seriously and and it's not um these 10 million alerts per night that's actually the easy part going through those the the um, uh, hard part is when you consider that for each of these 10 million alerts i would then have 20 different actions i could do i could trigger that telescope i could do nothing i could do this i could do that i could record it i could send an alert so if you consider that space of everything that could be done uh it, it becomes huge and then of course all of those decisions could trigger another decision. So if you followed it with an, a transient with one telescope, maybe you detected it and triggered another telescope, or maybe you didn't. So suddenly you have you have this huge tree of possibilities. And I think in principle, those those principles existed before, but but we didn't know about them. So, so we mm -hmm. couldn't take them into consideration. Now, in principle, we can, but but how do we do that? And, and there then, the only way is to be proactive instead, to revert this process. And, and this was what I mentioned too. To, um, first, without having seen what, what's out there, write down an hypothesis, write down a, a pipeline or constructive model that would be sensitive to, to find some specific kind of thing, and then throw that out into the data and, and see what happens. So, so it is um it is a different way of of trying to look at this this variable objects it reminds me slightly how um living 
perception works, cognitive science. Of course, the, the goals of a, of a living organism are pretty clear. First of all, I, we want to survive. So all the perception and attention mechanism is highly tuned to things that can happen, that can threaten us. We also have goals that like we want to eat, drink, etc. So that's how sort of like consciousness and perception solves it. But one of the uh, one of the, the attributes of perception, which it comes up a lot in AI because of the hallucinations that we see in, uh, in the large language models, is that uh, we hallucinate a lot in the sense that uh, we project, we build an internal model of the world and we project it onto the world almost like an augmented reality system and a lot of times we don't really see what's coming in because we see what we project and that can of course go wrong when it's only projection and you can become psychotic but there is a delicate balance between this projection and it's you know some say it's like 80 percent of the perception system is doing the projection and 20 percent is what's coming in and then there is this very similar like alert and attention mechanism that looks at prediction errors because what because if my prediction is what's happening i'm i i don't really need to pay attention and it's at every level of your organism cellular or you know high level but if something happens that your internal sort of generative model doesn't explain then you should probably pay attention to this so I'm wondering if, if there is something like this for, and, the, and, and this system is basically tuned for dealing with unknown unknowns, things that can happen that I don't have a model yet. Because a lot of those things happen when, when, when you are in an uncertain situation and, and you live. And that solves this problem a little bit uh, that... Uh, that those things that we would we would lose if we only had like fixed pipelines looking at certain categories of events we would lose those that don't fit into those categories that don't fit into any hypothesis because the hypothesis was inspired by the novelty so i'm not sure do you have any any idea or anything going on in this experiment on how to deal with those I mean that that is a a uh, the, the question of the unknown unknowns that that's uh, very much relevant and and it's very um, in in some circles it's very much discussed uh, consciously that that this is the official topic or kind of unconsciously I think that's for for a lot of the the um, I wouldn't call it old school groups but in this reactive way one of the what. This is actually one of their main criticism of this of this new way that that I whatever pipeline I can cook up, I don't trust it to to recognize when something's new and different while I trust my my um, um, I trust my intuition and my knowledge that if I would see such an event, I would realize this is something unique and new that's challenging. So in, in a lot of ways that's that's behind. Partially, that, that's behind the reluctance to shift into this other proactive way to to um, um, to deal with this problem. Um, there is kind of from from the other side of the community, we could call that the AI community. 
the, the imagined solution has to has been to build some sort of anomaly detection machine learning models that would also parse through the data. Um, there, I don't know if I'm somewhere in the middle, but I've never actually seen such a model that works on, on real data that produces based on astronomical data that we have, because the, at least so far, the noise has been too complex mm -hmm. that depending on how you tune it, you either find um, what, you either find some very known kind of transients, which is not interesting, or you just find various kind of noise that overwhelms your system. Um, so, so it's kind of, uh, none of those approaches seems to be ideal, at least with the, the techniques we have now. Um, I think the current best um, idea or approach is to have basically many parallel cells so that you have a range of different models tweaked for different science goals that are running in parallel, uh, including some that are maybe just random or some that are um, uh, just looking for, for individual objects that have, or in, individual features that, that are extreme in one way or another. And then having these run, run in parallel uh, and then seeing what we get. But, but it is one of the outstanding questions. Will we be able to find, um, find these unknown unknowns? Uh, that 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 we know are out there. Um, I just think the the uh, based on the data right that we're getting, you still need to have some system for how to deal with it. There is no uh, the the kind of the idea that we can kind of tune down the the the, the alert flow until we get a, a data rate that we can look at. Obviously, it doesn't solve the problem. That's a uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, in AI, we throw throw in this kind of like these definitions like supervised learning, unsupervised, or which anomaly detection is one of the the branches, which for me, I like fundamentally, the complexity of those are fundamentally different, like supervised learning is very well defined and even what we call now semi-supervised, what is a language model. We know what we want to predict in the data, and so it's just a function that we want to learn and it, well, we want it to generalize. But anomaly detection has always been something very complicated because you always have to explain what is normal. And that's more or less doable. But compared to that, what is not normal, that's like it goes everywhere in the space. So it's really, really hard. And that's probably very hard for living systems too. But we have a very, you know, evolutionarily, we were built to to do that. Otherwise, we would have died. And so I don't know if there is any analogy for this in, in this, because there's, I mean, these things will not die if they make a mistake. We just lose maybe some knowledge that we could have gathered if we if we tuned the anomaly detector nicely. But yeah, it's, it's it's still, I mean, this analogy for me, this building, this, this giant brain on top of this, this perceptive uh, input that comes from the, the big universe, that's, that, that amazes me. Yeah, it, it, it is amazing. I mean, the, the, uh, uh, I think the coming decade, the coming two decades or something will be the combination of 
So it's not just LSST. There will be a range of new observatories with these different messengers that, that I hope will be constructed. And it's kind of the combination of these with, with the new AI techniques that in principle, I mean, it will allow us to discover uh, just completely new facets of the universe that, that we had no idea existed before. So, so this is um, the scientific kind of potential here is, is, is extremely exciting. It's, it's then the, uh, the question how we can go there in, in a way that doesn't drive everyone insane that's trying to do it. Um, and then, of course, how to 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 avoid missing these obvious uh, unknowns that that um, yeah, I don't think we have a clear solution for that. Yeah, I have another interesting analogy, which is uh, if we go to business like uh, uh, you know language models where you know that you can make a product that will make money, you can allocate a lot of money to actually build it top down, a lot of engineering if you look at like the latest one is Gemini's uh, white paper, which has, I don't know, 500 authors, and it's a tightly organized hierarchical organism or uh, organization that built it, which is quite new in computer science, by the way, it's, we usually work in smaller groups. But something which we don't have this luxury in science, because uh, let's say value is not so tied to money or we don't, you know, like the number of people working in this domain is always less than the, 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 the amount of job that has to be done. So there is always this scarcity of uh, workforce, uh, attention, money, people, which forces you to, to, to invent interesting uh, mechanisms or interesting organizations to deal with it. And, and that was one of the other things that I really found interesting that LSST doesn't have the, the resources to deal with the alerts and doesn't have the resource, for example, to build a database which is fed real time and which can be queried real time because there would be too many people trying to query. And uh, so, so you came up with an ingenious structure where you have what you call these brokers between the raw data and the people who are interested in it. So explain a little bit that, that organization. Yeah, the, the, again, we get back to these 10 million detections that are, are distributed every night. Um, most of them will not be interesting, but, but a subset will be interesting. And there's no way to predict which events will be interesting, when that will happen, and how many would want to um, access that data. It's, it's also in, impossible to predict how much data people would request to, to find these interesting transients. So hence the idea that, that these new detections will not be accessible through database, but through alerts that are distributed. So single things saying, I saw something new, and the way these are, are distributed is, is through a network of brokers. So from LSST, there will be streams of alert going to a uh, set, a fixed set of endpoints, uh, brokers, and they will then be responsible to distribute this information further. And so these brokers belong to, to separate organizations? Yes. Mm -hmm. So they are um, uh, basically the LST organization then funds the, the bandwidth out, but then the different brokers kind of have to develop their own funding structure and their own funding scheme. 
uh, and and as you know in science, that's that's always a challenge. It's a um, but anyway, at the same time as it's a challenge, it's also an opportunity because it is uh, in a field where uh, dealing the science of opportunities of these these data streams is of course extremely large. And I'm sure we'll get more into machine learning. It's also kind of the prime area to apply machine learning models to, to data streams. So it's basically, it's a very attractive place to be for people interested in developing machine learning models for astronomy and, and, and real-time astronomy in particular. So I think that in itself motivated the creation of a lot of these uh, broker infrastructures. So and, what, and are the their, what are their incentives? The, the incentives, um, I think um, there, there is, that's a good question. I think the incentives are, are um, uh, slightly differ between the different teams. I think one incentive as in a lot of science is that this is something that you can get funding for. Basically you can uh, go to a funding agency and saying, this is important. I, or we can distribute these uh, alerts to this community of scientists, and this will allow us to do to science, and, and this is an opportunity to, um, uh, like to, to attract funding. But it's also, of course, the, the science potential that, that I think a lot of the teams interested in doing this are also interested in, in doing science and, and learning how to deal with these data streams. Uh, and of course, science in itself provides an incentive for, for people that actually enter this, <laughs> this game. Um, so I think it differs that, that the kind of partially, it was kind of a piece of the funding infrastructure that, that was left blank and partially it, it's a very fertile ground for actually doing science. It's, uh... And it, uh, for, from a like um, methodological point of view, it's interesting because it's, um... Is distributed and so you have space for independent development it's when it's top down if you know what you're doing it's good but if you're searching then the randomness of distributedness helps yeah and, and it's something that that we have seen in that the the different broker endpoints i think started from different starting points and has actually developed solutions with with their very different focus uh, and that are, I think, in the end, will be good for for different science applications. At least that's how I hope this will work out. So, so people, uh, these things started from different science group interests, and that has then motivated what they developed. And and I think uh, we're all surprised in kind of the the breadth of the different ideas that that came out of this. Okay, so let's talk about AI a little bit because it's for sure there's a lot of work in actually just coding the pipelines and maybe rule-based detectors in these pipelines. But but obviously one of the candidate technology to try, since the inc incoming things are images, we have these beautiful image uh, recognition solutions for now. Yeah. Why not use AI for this? So, so what is the status of AI, and how do you see its advantage and disadvantages in this these pipelines? So, this is um, uh, in in terms of a pure image analysis. Uh, 
I would say that this is an area where AI has gotten very mature. So it's kind of, and, and I think it's one of the first stages where it become established practice in, in, um, uh, in astronomy. And that's as this first layer, as you're saying, we can do very good image production and particularly recognize whether a transient, whether, whether one of these detections looks to be real or whether it, uh, it is some, some sort of image artifacts. So that is by now already taken for granted. There are still people who, who are skeptical to AI technologies, but they don't realize that, that we are already assuming that this is happening. And in fact, the, the, um, this number uh, of, of transients that are being distributed, that's after this layer. So it has already gone through a first uh, image analysis layer specifically designed to detect kind of irregular or non-real non looking transients. So if that layer wouldn't be there, then the number of detections would be even larger. Um, and, and that's, so, so that's something that, that we're using a, um, very successfully with, with kind of a precursor called the Svikia Transient Facility that's running now. And it's what we're assuming will be in place for, for uh, LSST. Um, and, and it's scheduled, but it's one of those things. Uh, maybe it doesn't work. Uh, it, so we are already in a stage where we are building an experience, uh, an, an experiment, assuming that at least it will be built on some AI model. And it's not even discussed or, or questioned. It's just a, a computational necessity. Technology, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and, and uh, um, at some point, very early on, people were skeptical, but, but not anymore. Um, but then we come to later stages in the pipeline where you get, the next stage will be to, to classify these things, to figure out, um, and we talked about the different kinds of transients, and that's a, uh, a hierarchy that you can go down to arbitrarily specific kind of subclasses of, of yeah, like uh, the end there is the individual object, right? Yes, yes, exactly, and and they are all they're all unique and exciting, um, and and this is a very active area right now, where different technologies are being tried. Some are some some are based on features. Some are really looking at the images, and where. Uh, we are trying to see how far can we push these technologies in terms of distinguishing the different um, different kinds of transients. Um, and um, so, so again, I think a lot of the LSST science era is or the assumptions are are are, are built on the idea that this will work. This is how we will have to deal with these transient data streams. Um, and the only question is, how good can we make those models? And, and for which science purposes will they be good enough? And there, I think the question is very much in the open. It's, it's a, um, um, there is kind of a range between more realistic models, maybe more modest that are running now and trying to focus on actually getting something that works and then kind of brand new kind of model developments that are very hypothetical in its stage, but, but might not actually work when applied to real data. So where do you get the training data for any of these tasks? Because that's all, that's always crucial. Do you have labeled yeah. real versus noise or categorized yeah. data from earlier experiments maybe, or how does it work? So, so it's, it's a, um, 
Um, we, you never have enough training data. You never have the training data that you actually need to do the, the, the classifier that, that, you, that you need to have. Um, it's, it's, uh, there are different approaches to this. There are unsupervised methods. Um, so far, they haven't behaved or they haven't performed very well. Maybe they will. I don't know. Um, then there are very supervised models that have taken dif different approaches on, on, on training data. Some are using um, uh, labeled, confirmed objects from uh, either other surveys or from the same, like subsets from the same survey. Um, and, and this is, um, of course, you have the usual problematic. These samples are small. They are usually biased in terms of the features. There are, of course, methods you can try to, to correct for that. Again, we don't know how well they will work. Other approaches has been to simulate transients, right? I mean, there are, for a large fraction of different kinds of these objects, we have models for how they could look. We can take a model for how the observatory should work, and we can try to simulate data. Um, again, and, and, um, uh, and then train our classifiers based on those. And this is kind of, for a lot of the, the Current experiment, this has been the go-to method because it actually works. Uh, yeah. it, it, you, you can, you have a bunch of models, you can simulate them, you can train, uh, you can train something, you can simulate a new batch of data, you can test your model, you can say this is working amazingly. Yeah, that's, that's uh, amazing. I mean, you know, the self-driving car pipeline also has that, and perception also has that. It's almost like what I was talking about, like we, we project our model and yeah, yeah. Be because when, well, so this is something we have tried with CTF. When we try these models on real data, they don't work, at least so far. I mean, and, and um, I mean, to some extent they work, but not at all like the, the um, um, as well as with whatever simulated data set you can, you can have. Again, we don't quite understand the variability that's out there. We don't, um, uh, we don't understand the noise of, of our own detectors and the universe because it's complex. Mm -hmm. I, I think the the um, um, the methods that at least our group find most promising now is to take the small labeled real data set we have and augment that to cover wider parameter ranges. Um, so this is something we're trying right now, but I think the jury about all of these methods is is still out. Um, and it's crucial because this will make us miss, right? It, it is crucial, and and I think one of the one of the um, aspects that's not being discussed is that um, we will not create the perfect model, and especially not at the first trial. And the only way to figure it out is to test our model, and and in the end, that will be our only way to evaluate how how, how well that, that works. On the real observations that we can on the real observation. So but how do you, how will you know if you'd throw away those that are not detected? Yeah, I mean this is so so, so uh, well you you would have to do some smart sampling of the data, right? <laughs> uh, that so so you you will you will and, keep and some of those that are, that are not detected, so you get a number as the estimate of the exactly so like so that, yeah. 
from 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 kind of a I don't know a theoretical point of view, we, we are now we have those models. We're proposing to do these tests, um, but we run into another almost sociological problem here, and it almost goes back to this proactive reactive way of doing science, in that in order to confirm our models, um, we need to use quite a lot of telescope time. Again, you mentioned before that for most telescopes, they're not a survey, but rather you, you have some body that controls the telescope, you propose to use it for some task, and then you uh, and then they rank proposal. And, and if you're lucky, and if you have a good proposal, you get some time to use the telescope for your, your goals. Um, the problem right now is that kind of where proposals we are writing is that uh, we have this classifier with with ninety percent probability it predicts that this observation is noise and non-interesting. Can I use your fancy telescope to observe to confirm that I'm correct in saying that this is this is just uninteresting? And, and of course, this goes again this this complete grain of the, this kind of reactive way of looking of first finding something and then following it up. So usually. That does that that goes against this whole system, and partially for good reason. If you mm -hmm. have someone that proposes, I have this exciting supernova that I want to observe, and then you have someone else saying, I have this noisy star that I think is uninteresting. I want to observe it, and then obviously you're going to give the time. So, so it will that will require a sociological shift where. Um, a lot of our resources are actually spent um, confirming or falsifying our main models that we use to draw our scientific conclusions. And uh, I don't know, I'm sure there are analogies to greater usage of AI and, and how it would place out in society, but that's definitely an aspect that, that we need to, well, we need to figure out during LSST, for example. Well, I mean, the, the analogy I have is, is, is wilder. Yeah. <laughs> Where you meditate, you know, that one of the metaphors that people use is that um, usually when you function, all your senses are transparent to you as the conscious central agency. You don't actually, you are not really aware of how your eyes work or how your touch works. You just touch and feel. But sometimes they go wrong, so you have to calibrate them. That's one view of meditation where you actually take off the glass and look at it and clean it and put it back. Mm. So it's almost like that you will need to dedicate some meditation time for your LSST telescope where it actually looks at itself and yeah. tries to make, you know, self-deception is what it's called for us. Yeah. So I don't know, it's like a sort of deceptive uh, observables where, where, where you observe your own noises and you think you found something interesting and that's sort of madness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I was thinking of, of the probably, of the very untasty analogy of self-driving cars where maybe we need to calibrate them by, by killing a number of people when it goes wrong as some sort of price to pay to actually get into work. And then there's a the question, so when is that actually worth it? If you compare with, with long-term, long-term other traffic deaths. That's uh, uh, a, a another kind of question that's not really nice to ask or discuss. 
Yeah, probably not with this example. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean it, it is. But it's definitely, uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean that's that's the trade-off of every living organism. That's why we explore. That's actually that we will we'll get there. Why you're an astrophysicist, but it's somehow the drive to know more, even if it takes risk, for a mammal, that exists. Like the dog goes behind every tree to sniff what's there, even though there may be a lion there because the risk of, of figuring out if there is some food there or something it can use worth it and so we, we even like the the default if we are not in a state of fear or or anger or some kind of like high heightened state of uh, of effect we are almost automatically go into exploration so yeah, yeah and, and that's of course always been the idea we see science as and basic science as kind of the, the ultimate expression of, of that drive. Um, but there there and, and with the new AI development, I mean another I, I sometimes then ask myself, and I guess we'll talk about more about science in general later, is that really the case? Are we really interested in exploring? Or are we really only interested in getting food and uh, <laughs> and, and shelter? It's it's a uh, did did we look up into the stars to actually find out what they are, or did we look up just to ensure that there was no wrathful god striking me right now, and and to kind of ease my fear? Uh, I don't know. It's, it's yeah, a... but I mean those those are very deep questions. I mean I have some ideas around it but for sure i mean that there's the basic individual drive of exploration but there is somehow this sociological drive of exploring as a group and this is what now science is we are not the lonely scientist we used to be or the lonely person who looks at the sky and tries to understand the the, the stars but we are part of organizations who do it at a, at a much finer scale with with sensors that individually we don't have so that's what it, it it reminds me so so yeah let's talk about uh, science and especially like how you became a scientist and why astronomy why astrophysics why not something else because that those are the questions that we can maybe answer on the individual level and that was the question also i asked in my presentation and it turned out like concretely i asked like why are you guys doing astrophysics I usually ask that question for a very concrete reason is because I was the the director of the Center for Data Science in Suckley, where we had to make decisions on basically like a funding agency a little bit, but of course I was more like a scientist. And I realized that I have no scientific training on how to decide between looking at Mars craters or looking at a, a, a hospital pipeline or looking at uh, behavioral economy how do how do you decide where i apply my ai expertise and so it was a regular question we asked to the people who came to us for help for you know allocating our attention to their problem to explain them explain us why their problem is important and so this is why i, I sometimes ask it in in my my presentations because i'm really really curious so tell me, why are you an astrophysicist? Uh, okay, let's start there. Um, 
I, w I wish there was a story like, like that your father that had built telescope as a kid or that my father had when I looked into the star and I always wanted to look at them, but, but there, there is no such story. So um, your father did? No, no, he didn't. No, no, he, didn't. no he, 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 uh, um, I mean, he, he is very scientific, but in other directions. Um, no, I, I had no original motivation to get into astrophysics. I think um, I wanted to do something exciting and um, new, and doing something in science seemed like the way to do that. I think that conclusion might very well be very different today. I mean, we, we have a, a um, with the development now, there's certainly not only discoveries being made in the universities, but but that's a different. That was the feeling I had at that time, and then it ended up being um, astronomy and astrophysics. That was just um, a coincidence. I, I started doing uh, philosophy and math, but I felt that was too too um, um, that was too abstract in the sense that it did not feel like it actually. In some sense, that it it was very beautiful, but it didn't mean anything to me. In some sense, it was it was not concrete enough. And then there was a patch from there that was mainly driven by randomly meeting people that were interesting uh, or that had job offers uh, and 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 interesting sounding projects. And and kind of then it was a random path until until where I am now. So that's the. Um, um, I think that's the explanation, and I think there is no, in some sense, deep connection to astrophysics in 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 that in that. Um, I'm thinking this is the the most exciting thing one can do. There are many things I would love to be able to spend my time doing, but it is exciting, and and I'm I'm. Uh, for, for whatever small fraction of my time I actually managed to do science, it's very exciting. And 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 uh, I think my only wish is that I would actually have a, have a larger fraction of that time to actually be able to do more more astrophysics. Because what is what do you spend your time on? I I think this is the I've I've discussed how how amazing the science potentials are for real time astronomy. At the same time, kind of the working climate in academic institutions is 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 not um, that accommodating. Basically, uh, and this is probably something that you've discussed before, that that being a scientist means that you're you are a scientist, but you're also a teacher, you're a project manager, you're a politician, you're a supervisor, um, you're a cleaner, you're a uh, uh, you're a writer. And, and all of these uh, kind of roles have to be somehow stitched together and, and you have to find a way to manage them so that you fulfill all your duties such that you are kind to people and still manage to find some time to actually fulfill the, these science questions. I see. I, okay, I understand, of course. Yeah, yeah. I thought you would, you would talk about uh, the technical stuff like coding and... Uh... Uh, yes, right. I mean, in that, the pipelines. I don't know. So, what 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 is your group doing, and what are you doing? So, so that's part of it. In in some sense, um, 
right now the 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 coding and, and this working out this infrastructure almost feels like scientific work and that is actually contributing to that but yes that was maybe what I folded under project management in the sense of, of trying to get this ample this framework that we're building and keeping all the the, the pieces together and make sure it's um, it's developing, which is and, a different task. So and, and when you say project management, so you have people that you direct. Um, yes and no. There are, there are people that are all that are working with me and that you try to coordinate with. It's okay. not a like in in a how I imagine a larger company where there are people that I can direct to do this or that. It's like everyone in the academia, you are you're doing things that because you want to do them. Right? Yeah, I mean in R and D in larger companies, it's it's not very different. They have a little bit of more leverage. But it's very much about persuasion and convincing people that what you want them to do is interesting for them for one reason or another. Yeah, and, and then trying to direct everyone's energy so that you have a, a common goal and that you make sure that the, the most critical things are done first. Yeah. Uh, and that you kind of try to do that as well as possible. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating how, how you, you know, you have these different levels in the collaboration. We talked about like the highest one, where we go, and then you have your individual level. And then between you have all this like tissue of, uh, of small group uh, energy behavior and incentives uh, and how it works at the end. It's sometimes a mystery. It is. And, and, and this is. Uh, and this is, of course, a very evolving picture. These different groups, again, getting back to this organic ID and, and the question of how, what's the optimal size of those? How do they interact? What, what do you do when, when they're growing? Uh, can they still be small? I mean, there are a lot of questions like that that are kind of, I guess, evolving now where I don't know quite where it will end. Yes, yes, exactly. The, the right word is evolving because I've, in like a private industry, I saw more of these expertise consciously being used, like organizational expertise and reorganizational, like coaching and ex external people who come in and look at your organization and try to modify it with hard work because it's always hard to to you know do something organizationally. But I have never seen it in in science. It's sort of more like a it's more based on the individual motivations and incentives that somehow work out on the group level. But I think like in when we go into physics, especially when these bigger experiments evolve, they start to work like a, a industrial organization because they have to, right? You have to build. Yeah, when, when you get to the to the to the that large scale, you have to have at least some consideration about that. But I think in general, just the, the um, I don't know if it's driven by the culture of science or the funding scheme, but, but I think one of the major problems is that these sort of, of, of tasks are very much needed, but they are very rarely appreciated. I think, as you say, I mean, it, it, it's obvious that you need these sort of, um, you to have good project managers would, be um, would be amazing for a lot of projects. It would especially make them last much longer. 
uh, create an impact. But there's just no no space in that in uh, as long as as it's kind of this idea that that we are living as creative science islands that are again looking up at the sky and, and thinking about what what could be the explanation for this so it's kind of a, an, another sort of mismatch there yeah and, and some of the the private companies especially for example DeepMind, but i also even know meta facebook they do do dive into not only ai but using ai for sciences and it's an interesting uh, a lot of things came out from DeepMind, like protein folding, or I don't know if they are in the space of uh, of astrophysics too. But on, you know, on biology, they are pretty present. How good those tools are, of course, uh, it will be decided by maybe more professional science teams. But there's definitely a lot of buzz and very interesting how AI can be used for all these tasks that we we are trying to trying to solve. So maybe there is so there is there is definitely with the AI boom there is more interaction between between those two worlds. Yeah, yeah, and of course there, there is the the um, it, it's at least a possibility that 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 the AI tools will be able to um, make a lot of what we're doing more efficient, like like software writing, which usually scientists are are crappy at, and maybe. It will be we will learn to use language models to do that much better and to integrate the, the tools that we're developing just so that it can allow people to actually spend more time working with scientific problems. I think that's the that's something that's definitely happening now and how well it will work in the end, I don't know. It's um... I'm I'm also very curious about this. We even have like projects now going into that direction because it's everybody's excited by that. I actually joked like, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago when data science became a thing that paradoxically data science will be the first one eliminated because we are data scientists and want to make our job easier. So we'll eliminate ourselves. And that's actually maybe happening. It's amazing. Yeah, but, but, but how, how far do you think that can be uh, that can be taken? I mean, that's I the... I tell you, tell you in a year where we end up, but it's definitely a project we are we are looking at now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's experimental for me. Data science is completely experimental. Actually, I learned a lot from from you guys in experimental physics about how to do experimental science, which is not what computer science used to be. So we have a lot to learn, and so it's experimental science, which means we have to do experiments. I, I cannot. It's very few things you can actually derive top-down from theory in AI. It's actually a doing thing now, which is similar to you know, experimental physics. That, that's interesting that you're saying that because the, the, in, in, in the past years, I mean, we have had various collaborations with computer science groups and, and uh, it's been very interesting. We've learned a lot, but in the end, we often encounter this, um, I wouldn't call it a culture crash, but, but the methodology crash where I think as I also mentioned before, um, most of their groups were very small and they were isolated and they were kind of working on one isolated theoretical computer science problem, how to how to derive the perfect database query or, or something like this. And, and it never actually matched the needs we had. We we're typically drenched with data right now and, and we just need a database that works. And, and 
Um, and, and yeah, maybe, maybe there is the AI is kind of the interface that, that will make all of this kind of fold And also industry, because most of those things are sold in, in industry. I mean, computer science research was always sort of like going into that direction because that was its role. It was research. The practical things are usually solved in companies. But I remember like, I, you know, when, when I started working with physicists in 2006, the grid was being built for the LHC on technology that didn't exist. So physicists, you know, smart people, a lot of smart people, and a lot of them went into this direction of uh, building the, the computational grid, the distributed thing. Of course, also because it wasn't top down, you didn't have one institution that could finance the whole thing. So they had to invent a lot of technology that supported the the distributedness. So it's one of the drives, actually. I mean, big physics is a technological drive, like the magnets that we did in the LHC are something that we use now in the MRIs. So and, it's, and, and, you know, it's there this interaction. It, and and it, it's very curious um, whether that trend continues, whether there can be some reversal. So we're actually now even more directly applying um, models from the commercial world or whether there is this this um this middle ground where i mean we talked a little bit about these biological kind of cells and entities and and how they interact and that that's one of the the kind of um and and to some extent it's it's related to the grid in that in some sense it's distributed you could view it as some sort of distributed models and and it is one question whether, whether, in some sense, both scientific theories and sensors can live as such distributed models and 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 learn to interact themselves, and and that that, um, and that that's maybe the the kind of a a um, in an ideal world that could be a new new kind of the grid that that might be born of how we have to deal with these these data streams from our different uh, observatories. Yes, um, I know, I, I see what you mean. The thing is like, even in AI research, it's, it's usually research, we're working on algorithms and, and we see the top of the iceberg, which is let's say OpenAI or, or, or Google or Facebook, who, who in this very narrow domain, which is language models, managed to build research and very fast build it into products but if you go down in this this iceberg a lot of companies are struggling with how to make uh, machine learning models robust and productionalize them and you know the infrastructure around because it's so random there is statistics you know it's not like a software where you can test uh, you know exact behavior it's 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 a lot of struggle i mean perhaps the biggest uh, domain where it it is happening is the self-driving car of course because there's a lot of uh, market possibility there but you see how how slow it goes a lot of uh, companies are closing uh, and tesla is struggling with the full self-driving for reasons that are hard because they are, you know, they, they, they work in the real world. And, and once you start putting the data science into your pipeline or, or, you know, AI models, it is interacting with the real world. It's getting the data. Otherwise, you wouldn't use it. 
And so the, these things are not, uh, it, they exist in big companies as, as, as it, they exist in like scientific pipelines. And, and I think because you guys are smart, you can actually innovate on that, that front, how to make uh, automatic AI pipeline. Paradoxically, it's not easy. I mean, it, it, it is interesting that you say that, that also these kind of models are struggling when, when they're kind of exposed to reality. And maybe one way that, that also ChatGPT, maybe it actually hasn't really been exposed to reality yet because it's seen through our filter where we are amazed by it. And, and it hasn't really, um, maybe we've talked so much or in, in the community what the impact it had, but maybe it doesn't actually have the impact that we assign to it yet. <laughs> and and me going back to the models that we are using that, that um, a lot of cases, the simplest models work the best. So not using the most advanced things, but just simple model, but that have actually been trained on, on real noise and knows about real noise, typically perform better than, than um, the most fancy newly developed things. That's the... Yes, yes. I mean, of course, everybody in the industry knows this. <laughs> you know, most of the models are XGBoost. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it, it's, uh, it's robust, I... it's beautiful, it works. It, it doesn't know how to generalize out of data distribution, but neural nets are not particularly good at that either. And at certain, you know, complexity where you have this, this sort of feature spaces, which we have in, in text or, or vision, they are not as good because they are, let's say, let, simpler in sort of the representation capacity that they have. But uh, for simple tasks, yes, you know. It's in, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a very interesting time to live in and a very interesting domain to, to, to study from this point of view too. Like research is, and, and especially because of the, the great success of uh, computer vision and language models, mm -hmm. people tend to, you know, all the conferences are now about deep learning, whereas most of the industry applications are on tabular data and XGBoost. So it's, a, it's an, it's another interesting discrepancy. And I, I like very much that, you know, the, the, the smaller data domain where we have more, a lot of, still a lot of interesting things to do, but because of how it works, you know, the buzz is on, on deep learning now. So, but I mean, it's, uh, it's fun. And especially we are on the user end of, of language models, mostly because there are very few, uh, you know, players in this field that can really train those competitive models takes like 500 million to billion dollar just to train a big language model today. So, and as a user, it's, it's a very interesting space. I'm a big fan of GPT-4 for various reasons, for various uses. Writing is one of them, which is obviously one of the main uses. And I will have some guests uh, talking about this because I'm very much interested in how people actually use it. And coding is the other. So I write to, say that it's an exciting space i mean be careful with it because it's uh it, it can it can give you a lot of things that it read people have already done but you don't know but if you want to do something that nobody ever coded it's tricky no it, it, it it's a um uh, i mean that's a question that that we've had and and that we experienced a lot of projects for for specific coding 
questions, how do you get something that does this? It, it has worked fantastic. But in terms of scientific writing, so far, sure, you can, you can write things in that mode, but it's, it's um, never, in what I've seen, never actually good in the sense that, that the whole idea of, of um, writing a scientific text when it's actually good is to write something where ev basically every word logically motivates the next and you're saying something new. And, and actually the, the best scientific writers are the ones that can compress their thinking into kind of the, the mm. shortest amount of words that express their new logical conclusion in a way that that, um, uh, that makes sense and in a way that's new. But typically mm. what we get at least from these versions from ChatGPT does not work like that. Again, mm. I, I'm not able to write scientific text in that way. I mean, it's really for, for the experts. So maybe some yeah, unreasonable explaining. But, but I think this is, it, it kind of goes back to this challenge that the whole idea of, of scientific writing is to write something uh, that is new. You, you're, you, you want to write a conclusion that's new. And the whole idea of a generative model is to produce something that someone wrote before. So it's trickier than that, but yeah. I mean, hallucination yes. is about when it invents stuff. So it does invent stuff. But yeah, it, no, it, it does invent stuff. But how do you uh, how 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 do you tell it to invent the right thing without actually no. having done it? No, yeah, that's true. That's true. So so yeah. So I think it's the, the 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 use case for GPT and all language models is still out there. So you, I mean, the jury is out there. We we don't really know. I usually use it to post process make my writing smoother or ask for finding an example of some kind of abstraction that I wrote so to bring it closer to somebody who wants more concrete stuff so very specific things and not to actually write the whole article and I think a lot of people are using them in in this sense like you can also summarize research yeah, it because that's just things that were out there, and you just want it, to have a short. That, that is actually very impressive. It's it's a. Mm -hmm. it, it would be nice for someone to do some academic study and actually verify how good the summaries are. I mean, they always look very good, right? So. Yeah, that's true. Hmm. Yeah. In any case, I mean, yeah, yeah. So it's uh, it's 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 a limited use, and I, I'm always like you know smiling at people who think that we are at AGI and these kind of algorithms will wake up and do something nasty because they just you know information processing tools, but pretty intelligent ones. Okay. So is there anything else uh, that we haven't covered that you you'd like to talk to talk about? Um. I don't know. I think it's it's for before we started talking, I was kind of um, uncertain what we would have to talk about <laughs> since since uh, I I'm not working with with uh, the solar consciousness and I'm not an, an a computer science AI modeler, uh, but but rather as 
by necessity to fulfill the task. It's kind of tools you have to grab to without knowing and not as much as you should. So <laughs> I, I'm, I, I thought the conversation was very nice for me. I don't know if I have anything more to add. Uh, I think it was very, it was very interesting. Sounds good, and thank you. Uh, no, it's. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm interested in a lot of things. That's why I was the director of the data science center for data science because they, I could got to work with a lot of different things, and that's you know, it's my so, my nature, and that's why I'm I'm actually very interested in how you choose because there are a lot of interesting things to do. Yeah. Well, but, I mean you. I think about choosing. There is no you. You're just the boss. You choose. So, so do I get the money? Say it again. So, do I get the money? Which money? Oh, I, the... I, I, I didn't get the, the start of the joke. Sorry. So, you, you, your, 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 your. Uh, going back to your hypothetical institute director, would you give, would you give the money to <laughs> to, to real time astronomy? It's never an absolute decision. So that's what I learned. It depends who, who the others are. But it's definitely something I, I would be very excited to, 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 to work on. And definitely, I mean, yet we would have to be more concrete too, what you get, the, what you want the money and the, the AI expertise for. And we, what we, you know, we try to design even like a software system around the idea that what we we are good at we are we are not good at uh, productionalizing ai code or we can do also research but it's probably not for the kind of projects that we funded because we wanted something more compact and short so what we were looking for is what do you have all the ingredients for me as a machine learning expert to actually do something useful so one thing was, yeah, you had to, to explain how excited you are and what the science is, but usually people pass that one. And then the next questions were, do you have the training data? Do you have the labels? Do you know, you know exactly what you want to predict? Can you measure the error? And is it, you know, what is the, what is the, does it have any research spice on top of it? Or is it just a standard problem? If it's standard, we can just write a data challenge and give it to students, or we have to work on maybe because it's out of distribution or something like that. So these were the, the interestingness uh, features that we, 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 we looked at. So we actually, I had a postdoc who worked on Euclid, which is very similar to, it's another telescope, I think it's a space one, but it also, they started to work on already uh, AI in the in the detection pipeline. So I, 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 I knew this a little bit, but of course not, not as profoundly as you, but it's definitely, you know, it would have been high on the, on, on the list uh, to fund. Yeah. So you got your money. <laughs> okay. So thank you very much. So I usually ask my guests to ask me one question at the end. Um, right. Um, okay. So, so, so here's one thing. I, I a little bit have the feeling that most of what I said kind of confirmed things you already thought or we, or, or I had said, or, or that you kind of suspected, um, and, and consequently, you can think of, so, so now we're doing a podcast. We're having, I think, a discussion that we all find 
nice and interesting, but will it actually uh, change anything in what we do in terms of practical? Uh, and 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 if not, I mean, you must have a reason for why you're doing this podcast. And can you think of of, of a guest that would uh, actually? present something, an argument or usage that would actually change how wh what you're doing in your life. That would, <laughs> that, that, that would uh, say, yes, I will from now argue, argue against AI. I will stop my work and become a monk. I will become a politician. What oh. would the guest that actually can ch challenge everything you know and, and think uh, as a rationality behind this? Thank you very much. Uh, I haven't expected this question, but let's say I have. A, I don't think convincing works. I think because, because debate, already... like debates are overrated, the format. What works for me and why I'm doing the podcast is more connection. So the person or the conversation that could change me would be somebody I would like to become. And I think every so so that's 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 behind any connection. And somehow, you know, I got attracted to you, not like, you know, in a as a, as, as an intellectual way when we talked for some reason, because I found that uh, you know what what you you were working on and what you were talking about was somehow connecting to you know my thoughts or or, or me as a person and we had a very nice conversation in the in this reception area which was a little bit noisy and everything but it was still very nice so um, I don't know so so th these things work in a very subtle way. So I, I cannot give you because it would be very like less left hemisphere that, OK, you, you said something and that changed my mind and now you, I will do this. What I see more is like like a dance. Where we converse, we get to know each other, we get to know what excites us. I see your emotions and I get excited when you get excited. And that sort of like slowly maybe transforms me into a direction. I definitely know now more about uh, the, the, the problems of astrophysics or LSST or, or the organization or around and also the technical problem in that sense I got I, I get out of this conversation enriched uh, but I could not really pinpoint uh, okay from from tomorrow on I will do this differently it will probably add something to who I am and what I'm looking for. And actually, this podcast has been really interesting, this point of view, because you said, you know, and not, not only you, like a lot of people who I ask, how did you end up astrophysicist or physicist or economist? There's a lot of luck in that. Like I talked to that people and that was exactly this process. Like you talk to them and then somehow they got attracted through them to the, to the subject. And so this podcast is like, like a, there's a lot of randomness in it because I don't have like a fixed guest list that I want to. There are people I I, I, I am contacting and that, that I want to talk to, but there are a lot of uh, 
serendipity in this you know like i have some twitter conversations with someone and for some reason i want to talk to them and that conversation with that changed me so there is this process of of, of change and maybe it accumulates and in a certain moment i do something big that's very visible but i think the the most the, the effect that these conversations have on me are more subtle and small and they change me but not in a drastic way so i don't know if that answers your question but yeah what do you think no i i, I think it does i mean i guess my my hind i, I guess i had thought two thoughts in my head what one was this general one that that we we often talk to people um that we are pretty similar to and mm. that's the question is is that then um uh is that reinforcing our what we already kind of subconsciously or consciously, consciously believe or, or does it really expose us to new ideas and the, the other one was more directly related to ai and 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 there the question is um i mean it's not so much what these ai models can do and how they look but rather when they get the influence to 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 change how we are acting, what what we actually do. I see. But that's a that wasn't so, the question yeah. I asked. But it was. Yeah, I mean, but both are very interesting. So the first one is, uh, I did talk to people I didn't agree with. Like like Bogdan was an early guest who was a student of mine, and I knew he went into the direction of maybe more pessimistic on AI and more mm -hmm. cautious. But my approach is not really to argue or to to even collide things in it. It was more about understanding him, where it, where he's, he's coming from, and understand why he is where he is. And somehow, I mean, that's 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 my goal with this podcast. Is not about uh, there are a lot of lot of those debates out there. If you if you like them, no. you know they they somehow get a lot of hits too because people sort of like identify with one of the persons and get this like uh like uh hit out of it that uh what you were just saying that like uh, reinforcing them in their their own identity but what i'm looking for is more like understanding like there is this notion of stillmaning the other and it's actually it's usually in the context of making your argument stronger by not arguing the straw man of the opposition but the steel man like the, the 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 best possible case for the other and what i find is actually that the steel manning process is itself more interesting than actually than arguing you know yeah yeah and it that it does change you know what i think and i i can identify with 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 with, with bogdan then you know, I see the it, it enriches my my point of view. It it will not sh not it might sharpen what I think. That's not what he thinks, but it may also make me softer and accept his point of view. And this this is happening. And the other one on AI. Remind me. So, so this was um, not a. I don't know if it's a, how how does it change us, right? Yeah, and how yeah. how I mean this general question, which I think is 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 actually more interesting than how advanced ChatGPT now is, is how how do we 
make based on what do we make decisions and mm. how do we make sure that we trust information that we use to make our decisions be whether they come from social media or from ChatGPT or from a scientific model and and i think that in some sense all of these channels have their information channels have their own drawbacks but in the end wherever they're coming from we we have to make a decision so what what information what propositions do i actually trust enough to guide what i actually do and sometimes what i think might not matter it's what i how i act to other people and and how do i digest these different information channels to actually uh act and and maybe change how i'm acting or or, or continuing how i'm acting anyway making a subconscious or unconscious decision man that's that's a that's an amazing question the um, so what what's missing from ai and maybe it's even like more profound than just a technical thing that's missing is what is called epistemic authority so when i see a proposition or something that has a truth value and i have to decide whether it's true or not i have two choices either i can do the experiment myself because i can touch the table and it's there and i can look at its color it's red or i somehow believe that the person who is giving the, the proposition is trustful and so this is what i call epistemic or it's a, it's a term epistemic authority so i assign authority to to the source of that information and there are, we developed a lot of tools for that and the first one is just you know personal connection i can look into your eye and see whether you want to you don't want to deliberately mislead me or uh, you know it's not an adversarial situation so from that point of view i just sort of like put a check mark here that you really believe what you're saying but the the other interesting tool for that is stories and there is a hypothesis that actually episodic memory which where we actually store stories we store concrete events that happened with us was developed for establishing epistemic authority so when you ask me about something and i tell you you can ask me how do i know and you'll judge the plausibility of the story i tell to to judge the trustfulness of that particular piece of information so this Typically, like search engines have that, like search engines point to a page and then you sort of recursively delegate that decision to whoever wrote that piece or whatever is the journal. So all the, the, the informational infrastructure around trust is, is built, like you have the reputable journals or not, or reputable people or not. And so we have this in our mind, not only, you know, a model of the world, but also a model of the, the trustfulness of the sources. Uh, so search engines typically just delegate it to whatever they point to GPT and the AIs don't. And this, this, these are one of the, the points where they are really bad at. And I'm sure that people who try to make a product of it, not for creativity, which is, I think they are wonderful, but for 
for information retrieval, they have to fix this. So either it has to come with references, like in, in for a scientific paper or any other thing, or they have to be mixed with, with, with search engines if people want to use them for, for information retrieval. But then, then you have the risk of they becoming just a search engine. So I don't know if the, in the space of the complete uh, free creativity or hallucination and uh, search engine is there is some kind of product that would, would have some some place, but I'm, I'm, I'm sure people are looking at it. So, so yeah, I mean, anybody blindly believing what GPT says is a fool today, because it's not that it most of the time it's correct. But you, if you don't know the information and you, you just go there and trust it, you, you, you don't have any means to verify it other than yeah. doing the search, but then it's not, not, it's, you know, it's the search. No, oh, exactly. And, and and social media is, of course, even worse, because there you don't even know that you're um, hmm. that that you are accessing information with a possible um, traceable history in chat. I don't know. I think social media is actually one of the infrastructures that we built that, you know, to maintain trust. So I don't know, I go to Twitter, I have people I follow and I have the history of how trustworthy they are or how truthful they are or how reliable what they said they were. So it's we are almost like running the scientific method there, like it's predicted something that didn't happen, then trust level goes down. So and and of course I'm not talking about the anonymous trolls, but whoever who trusts them, you know, nobody. But for the people who have names and uh, history. It's actually not a bad tool for. It's actually replacing. So it's it's a funny thing. It's replacing the the the, the old structure, the authority, the journal, or the journalist. But but that, that's that's as long as 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 you are using it the way that you're saying. You're only looking at you've selected uh, sources that you have yeah. given authorization yeah. and in some sense that reminds me of an old reactive astronomer where this was possible to do mm. and you you kind of consciously subconsciously you ignored a lot of things and you said i'm going to react to this and the sources and i'm going to ignore everything else and that's fine but you're still uh then limiting your information flow yeah no i absolutely absolutely no it's, that, it's a, and that's that's an unsolvable problem which we, we all try to manage and yeah. it depends a little bit on uh, how open you are to to other opinions how much you are looking for it or how much you you develop those kind of connections but one of the things you know because twitter is so ephemeral so 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 short attention span and connections that it is hard for to to go deeper in some 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 of these issues so that's why i'm doing the podcast actually so i I'm thought like twitter is a nice tool for having this 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 very momentary connections but sometimes i would want to go deeper and i want to know the person and have a have a discussion on it and make you know make myself open to that point of view but yeah i mean this is this is a this is like the basic dilemma of exploration to the new and the unknown and the scare the scary or staying within whatever i know and be comfortable mm -hmm. with it yeah. it's a 
it's a constant dance between those things. And, and, and it is in terms of these tools that we are developing to deal with LSST data, um, there it becomes a practical question because in science, we want to have a traceability. So one of the greatest challenges has been a, built a system that can handle this data, but where actually in principle, you can control for this. So it's, it's a real question that we are trying to at least have, have some sort of tools to solve. Yes. Yes, so it's a wonderful way to end. We, we turn back to, to LSST. So thank you very much, Jacob. It was a great, great evening and a great conversation. And these are the ones, these, these, these are the kind of conversations I do the podcast for. So thank you very much. Very good. Thanks for inviting me. I'll, I'll uh, look forward to seeing where this goes and, and, and all the solutions you'll uncover <laughs> and the truths. Okay, thank you, Jacob. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye.